Amen. Hey, once again, we are in our study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult. I'm going to do it again, Mary. The Rise of Wicca. You did that not only so perfectly, you timed it with some intro music while you said it. That was brilliant. I'll have to give you kudos for that. But that's right, uh, Witchcraft and the Rise of Wicca. Hey, by way of a recap, because that's what we do, uh, we've been uh, taking a look. First of all, we start off with the definition of witchcraft uh, in our study. Then we saw the types of witches, the locations of witches worldwide. uh, And we're certainly seeing that in our history section. Uh, The protection from witches, what do you do? How do you get protected from that stuff? Well, if you ain't saved, amen, praise God. If, if you're not saved, get saved, right? Uh, if you are saved, then it's through the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, okay? Then the last three times we've been dealing with the history of witchcraft. We saw that it's nothing new under the sun. People want to say, oh, wicked, this is a new movement or relatively new and, and all this stuff, and it's not old-fashioned paganism. Yes, it is. In fact, it's nothing new under the sun. It started at the Tower of Babel right after the flood. Mankind was already rebelling against God, not just with building that tower, but also with witchcraft. And then as we saw, the Bible tells us that from Babylon, all the nations of the earth began to develop. They began to spread out from that area and certainly agrees with the historical account because God never gets it wrong. So from Babylon, where we go to? To Egypt. And so witchcraft started here. Where do you think? Here. And it went to Egypt. And last time we saw with Greece. Okay, it went to Greece, as you can see here. And we saw that the Grecian culture, which is kind of an interesting thing if you think about it, our society, even here in America, kind of idolizes. We even have college courses on uh, Greek philosophers and mathematics and stuff. But we saw that those guys, some of them, were involved in what? Witchcraft. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because witchcraft, just like the Bible says, went from Babylon to Egypt to Greece. And man, they were steeped in it big time. And uh, including certain things, like they had a Greek goddess called uh, Hecate, uh, the triple-headed goddess that was the goddess of witchcraft. They literally uh, worshipped that. And of course, uh, all kinds of different entities. They had uh, basically kind of witches. They had Mormo. Remember Mormo? Which is where Joseph Smith, the con artist, got Mormons, okay? Again, but they they use Mormo, remember, if you recall, as kind of like a boogeyman. Don't let Mormo get you. So as we saw, that was kind of the modern version. Don't let the Mormons get you. You hear that knock at the door? Run! So anyway, uh, Mormo, we saw also Jello, not that delicious dessert. Uh, Lamia and Pusa, uh, we find all kinds of writings from Greece with the Greek uh, magic papyri, with witchcraft. We see that they had spells, they had drugs and potions, they had uh, even voodoo dolls and things of that nature. They had their charms, they had amulets, they had curses. Uh, there's a gold amulet right there as well. And then we saw, believe it or not, there's a pagan, neo-pagan revival going on, and not just with witchcraft and the occult practices, but even the worshiping of those old Greek gods is coming back. Anything but Jesus Christ, our culture is turning to, uh, and it's unfortunate, okay? But just like the Bible says, it began to spread out. So where do we see it go next? Well, that's where we're going to be tonight, and that is this place. We're going to see it went to Rome, okay? And what's important is we're going to see tonight is this was the society that was in power when you had Jesus appear on the scene in the early church, okay? And we're going to see that one of the things they had to deal with was witchcraft, okay, in the Roman society. Now, let me give you just one example of the early church having to deal with witchcraft in the Roman world at that time. Uh, Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is our opening uh, text, and we're going to read verses 9 through 24, right? And we're going to read Simon the sorcerer. Gee, what is that? Uh, it's called witchcraft, right? Okay, and again, this is the birth of the church. Acts 2, now we're in chapter 8, six chapters later, and they run into a witch, a sorcerer, okay? 
and uh, some interesting things going on with him. Simon the sorcerer, verse 9 says this, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced what? Here it is. So it's already in that society, and they just happened to run across the guy in the city. And he what? He amazed all the people of Samaria. Now, he boasted that he was someone great. In fact, all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the uh, great power. Now, whether he realized or not, that term there, uh, the great power, that's a messianic term. Okay, so they thought this guy was just amazing. With his witchcraft that he was doing, people were just, to use their term, spellbound. They were like, wow, this guy, he's, he, is he the Messiah, right? So it's a little bit deeper what's going on here. So they followed him because he had amazed him for a long time with his what? Magic or witchcraft, okay, sorcery. But then <clears throat> when, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and you're going to see tonight, again, just like the Greeks were polytheistic, many gods had gods for everything, Rome did too. And so this is a radical idea when you come along and says, there's only one God. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, but then they believe though, uh, in the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Okay. So again, what was he amazed about? The fact that I'm saved, I'm born again. Because there's a debate here. You got some people say that Simon really wasn't converted. Okay. Uh, and then some say, no, he was converted. He's just as a young Christian, if you will. He just made mistakes, and does that happen? So there's kind of a debate. You can go either or with that, okay? But, but you're, you're seeing his heart being uh, here is that he wanted power. He was amazed. He's like, man, I was powerful, and people got attention to me. He thought I was the Messiah, basically, with his witchcraft, and look at what you guys are doing, man, you know? And so he, that, that was where he was wanting. Now, do people supposedly get saved today and go into supposed churches, and instead of just intimate, loving, beautiful, grateful, thankful relationship with Jesus Christ, they come because they want the power, and they even want to buy it from the guy who's supposed to give it to him with his gimmicks and techniques and books and seminars? That's what Simon was doing. Wait till you hear what the apostles said about that. All right. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, as we saw in our charismatic chaos study, this is one of the uh, uh, misabused uh, passages from the charismatic community that says, see, there's a, there's a second dose of the Holy Spirit that you need to have. No. As we saw, the book of Acts is a transitional book from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And there were certain things that happened during that time to validate this new gospel, this new covenant, right? And, and part of it was, it wasn't just the Jews were getting saved. Who could get saved? Anybody get saved, including Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jewish people are like dogs, right? And it's like, what? Samaritans are getting saved? Even they can get saved? Yeah. And so what was the proof? They, 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 it was the, the uh, indwelling Holy Spirit, okay? So again, so then when the apostles come to verify, is this really true? Samaritans getting saved? Okay, they came, laid hands on them, so we'll see in a second. Then they received the Holy Spirit. But that was just during the transition period. Now when anybody gets saved, what happens? Immediately, you're born again with the Holy Spirit. You understand that? So they, they don't understand the transitional historical uh, aspect of Acts, and they abuse it. So I just want to explain that. We went in great detail in our charismatic chaos study on that. But since we hit it again, want to make sure you get the right understanding. So then Peter and John placed their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw, now again, what's he looking for? Power. Because that's what he was doing back in witchcraft. He saw that the Spirit was given by laying on the hands of the apostles. He offered them what? Money. Now why would he offer them money? Because if you understand witchcraft and the occult, that's what you do. You have to pay for the next spell. Those ain't free, folks. 
We've got to pay for that. And then as we saw back in our Scientology study, remember that's what was the whole basis of Scientology? You want to make it to the next level? What do you got to do? Pay big bucks. Now, where did uh, L. Ron Hubbard get that idea, if you guys recall? From Aleister Crowley, who he was a devotee of Aleister Crowley. And when Hubbard wanted to learn a new technique, because he was heavy duty into witchcraft and the occult, okay, uh, he had to write back to Crowley and give him money for the next set of spells. And he built that into Scientology. So, but still today, that's the mindset of witchcraft. If you want to advance, you got the money. So sure enough, that's what he did. He, he was going to, oh, give, you know, give me that. What's that technique? I'll buy it from you, right? And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone whom I, my, uh, whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And what did Peter say? May your money perish with you. Now, that's a gentle translation. It literally is basically to hell with you and your money, right? Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part and share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing uh, you have said may happen to me. Now, again, just as, as a, a deal, people today are being told that's the purpose of being a Christian so that you can get power, right? But in order to get that power, you got to learn these techniques from the guy. But does the guy give him the techniques for free? No, you got to buy. You have to give the guy money. And what do the apostles say? And, and the idea that the whole idea of being a Christian, that it revolves around you and you being powerful and you getting the attention and then you offering money to get to that status, quote, in the church, what's the apostles' attitude towards it? To hell with you and your money. This, you better repent of that wickedness. And that's being encouraged in the church today, once again, back into our charismatic chaos today. But we're, we dealt with that for 42 weeks. I think we're done with that one for a little while anyway. Uh, but anyway, Simon the Sorcerer. So again, what's my whole point in bringing that up? Guess what? This was witchcraft in the early church with the Romans still in power at this time. Okay. Yes, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but who was overseeing the Jewish people in Jerusalem? The Romans, right? As we saw in the study Sunday, right? That was the mis- one of the mistakes of the Jewish people. They, they wanted Jesus to be their political savior to get them free from Roman oppression, right? Instead of him as their uh, uh, spiritual savior, okay? But, but again, this tells us that Rome was in power and what was just, they're walking along the road and who do you come across? Here comes a sorcerer, somebody involved in witchcraft, okay? And that's what's going on. Now, the Romans, as we saw, where did they get it from? Well, again, they came from Greece. Now, as we saw last time, uh, the Romans basically, ah, we don't need to reinvent uh, the wheel. Let's just take all those Greek gods and change them. And do the same, and that's what they did, okay? Let me give you that list of that stuff. Uh, Zeus, again, turned to Jupiter. That's all they did. Hera went to Juno. Uh, Poseidon turned into Neptune. Uh, Demeter turned to Ceres. Uh, Athena to Minerva. Apollo stayed Apollo. I don't know if you can see that, but I had to put some shorts on him. Uh, Artemis uh, went to Diana. Uh, Ares went to Mars. He had some shorts, too. Aphrodite to Venus. She needed the whole blouse. Uh, had to had doctor that one up. Uh, Hephaestus went to Vulcan. Uh, Hermes went to uh, Mercury uh, with some shorts there. Uh, Hestia to Vesta. Dionysus to Bacchus. He's the god of wine. Of course, the uh, party guy had to put some shorts on him. Okay, but that's basically what they did. Now, as we did last time, I just want to give you an idea of their culture. Polytheistic, just like the Greeks. They just changed the names. So like we did last time, let's just, I, I, we can't go through all of them. I kid you not. You thought the Greeks had a bunch of gods? Whoo-wee. Man, these guys had a god for everything. Okay, little G, of course, and little God of Goddess, okay? And, but let's take a look at just the top eight of that society. And again, when you're, now we're at the level where, pay attention, what you're looking at is when the early church and even Jesus walking around 
in this Roman-controlled society, this is the, the mindset of the world at that time. Okay, and then here comes Jesus saying, I am the Messiah, the one and only God. Okay, what a radical message he had. But let's take a look at their top eight gods. Number eight, Jupiter. Jupiter was the Roman equivalent of the Greek god Zeus. He was the king of gods, the god of the sky and thunder, and the main deity of ancient Rome until Christianity took over. Because he was so popular and powerful, the Romans named the largest planet in the solar system after him. Fun fact, the ancient Babylonians were the first people to record their sightings of the planet Jupiter. Jupiter was the son of Saturn, an agricultural god, and Ops. And his brothers were Neptune, the god of the sea, and Pluto, the god of the underworld. They were quite the trio, but Jupiter was the most powerful of his siblings. He carried an endless supply of lightning bolts and ruled by intimidation. Each god had a specific task, but Jupiter's role was vast. He assisted the kings in establishing the principles of the Roman religion, and Romans honored and prayed to Jupiter the most out of all the gods. Statues, temples, and relics were erected in his honor in their cities, and public officials took their oaths in his name. During wartime, he gave protection and could decide which side would be victorious. In peacetime, he was the god of justice. He was also busy with bringing light, keeping order, providing general welfare to the people, and taking care of everyone after death. Number 7. Juno Juno was the queen of the gods, as well as Jupiter's wife and sister. Together with Jupiter and Minerva, she was one of the three original Roman gods worshipped in Rome. She appears as a statuesque woman of radiant beauty and with slightly militaristic features. In some depictions, she's shown with a peacock and wears a goatskin and carries a shield and spear, ready to help the armies in battle. From the outset, Juno represented all aspects of women's lives, especially marriage and childbirth. She became an important guardian and protective figure for the ladies of ancient Rome. Several temples were erected in her honor, including one on Esquiline Hill and another on Capitoline Hill. She is often compared to the Greek goddess Hera, although there are several differences. Juno was quite heroic and considered more peaceful and less vengeful than Hera. Over time, Juno's role eventually expanded to include more functions, making her the state's primary female deity and thus more like Hera. She came to be seen as a protector not only of women, but of the entire Roman Empire. She also guarded over the finances of the empire, and the month of June is named after her. Since she is the patroness of marriage, women, and childbirth, it is very fitting that the month of June is the most favorable time to marry. Number 6. Minerva Minerva was the goddess of wisdom, medicine, the arts, and eventually war. Jupiter was her father and gave birth to her from his head. She was one of the three original Roman deities along with Juno and Jupiter. Ancient depictions of the goddess often show her donning military apparel such as a shield, belt, and helmet. Minerva was once closely associated with the Greek goddess Athena. Minerva eventually became synonymous with victory, as evidenced by a temple the politician and military leader Pompey built in her honor after his successful campaigns in the east, as well as a temple the emperor Domitian commissioned after declaring the goddess to be his protectress. Number 5. Neptune Neptune was the god of the sea. As you might remember from what I told you, his parents were the gods Saturn and Ops, the Earth Mother. Neptune had several siblings, including brothers Jupiter and Pluto and sisters Vesta, Juno, and Ceres. He was similar to the Greek god Poseidon and often appeared as an old bearded man carrying a three-pronged spear called a trident. 
At some point, Neptune also came to represent horse racing, most likely due to early depictions of him riding through the water in a horse-drawn chariot. He was known for his violent temperament and vindictive tendencies, which reflected the ocean's unpredictable nature. At a lack of scientific explanation for earthquakes, the Romans believed Neptune caused them when he was angry. Number 4. Venus Much like the Greek Aphrodite, Venus was born from the sea foam and was the Roman goddess of love, sex, beauty, prosperity, and fertility. She was strikingly beautiful and was represented by many of the same symbols as Aphrodite, including roses and the evergreen shrub myrtle. Other symbols of Venus include the scalloped shell, dolphins, doves, mirrors, pearls, and pomegranates. Venus was extremely important to the Romans for other reasons. They believed that her son Aeneas was the ancestor of Rome's original founders, Romulus and Remus, essentially making Venus the mother of Rome. Julius Caesar claimed she was his direct ancestor and paved the way for various other politicians to favor her. On April 1st, a festival dedicated to Venus called the Veneralia took place. Her followers washed her statues and adorned them with flowers and myrtle wreaths. They also vowed to honor her by fulfilling the moral obligations of their marriages and asked for her advice concerning romantic and relationship issues. Number 3. Mars Mars was the god of war and ranked second in importance to his father, Jupiter. Son of Juno, too, some believed that Mars was the father of Rome's founders, twin brothers Romulus and Remus. He was represented by his sacred shield, the Ansile, and was often depicted wearing bronze armor, carrying a bloody spear, and riding a chariot drawn by fire-breathing horses. Other symbols of Mars include a vulture, dog, woodpecker, and burning torch. Mars was considered the protector of the Roman army and was highly revered by mortal men, despite having a reputation among the gods as difficult and argumentative. He loved violence and conflict and was called upon to aid Rome during times of war and bloodshed. Soldiers prayed to him for protection and victory before entering the battlefield. Mars' role as a protector during times of war extended past the battlefield and into civilian life. The Romans relied on him to protect their cities from invading forces and to quell rebellions. There were two annual festivals in honor of Mars, and most of the month of March was spent in his honor dancing, drinking, music, and feasts. Number 2. Diana Diana was the goddess of the hunt and the Roman counterpart of the Greek Artemis. Jupiter was her father and her mother was his mistress, Latona. Her twin brother is Apollo, the god of light and music. Diana was born fully grown and was a tall, beautiful woman with a youthful appearance who wore a tunic and was usually barefoot. She was often depicted as looking between 12 and 19 years old and carrying a quiver and a bow. In addition to representing the hunt, Diana also symbolized wildlife, fertility, childbirth, chastity, and the moon. The Romans believed she could communicate with animals and even control their behavior. Women prayed to her for an easy childbirth and when they wanted to conceive and she was highly respected among women for her role in fertility. Nemoralia, or the Festival of Torches, took place in Diana's honor on August 13th, and some pagans still celebrate it today. It's a day of rest where all hunting is banned, and worshippers pray to the goddess for a bountiful fall harvest. Number 1. Apollo As I mentioned before, Apollo was Diana's twin. He was known by the same name in both Greek and Roman mythology and was one of the most important and complex deities in ancient Rome. In Roman mythology, Apollo was mainly the god of prophecy and healing. He was also associated with light, knowledge, poetry, and art and was represented by the golden lyre that Hermes created for him. 
Apollo was beardless with a youthful and athletic appearance. Despite his healing capabilities, Apollo could also inflict plague and poor health upon others. He was a busy god who also directed a choir, was the patron defender of flocks and herds, and served as an intermediary between gods and mortals. In his spare time, he enjoyed attending drinking parties on Mount Olympus in the company of his beautiful muses and playing delightful tunes on his lyre. Sounds like a party animal. Yeah, nice god, huh? Yeah, it's no different than man, and that's basically because these are man-made deities you saw last time. Uh, it's ridiculous. But these guys had a god for everything. That's just basically their top eight. But I'm telling you, they had a god and so-called goddess for everything. Let me just give you a, a quick rundown. Aurora was the goddess of dawn. Calus was the god of literature. Cupid, the god of love. Faunus was the god of forests, fields, plains. Fortuna, the goddess of chance. That's in fortune. Janus is God of uh, beginnings, gates, transitions, time, duality, doorways, passageways, endings. Mercury, the God of shopkeepers, merchants, travelers, transporters of goods, thieves, and tricksters. Nox was the goddess of night. Pluto was the God of the underworld and the riches under the earth. Supposedly, Prosperpina uh, was the goddess of fertility, wine, and uh, agriculture. You know, one to prosper. Uh, Terra. Want to guess for that one? The goddess of the earth. Uh, Veritas, uh, Veritas. Uh, the goddess of truth. And again, I'm telling you, they had a god for everything. You're going, this is goofy. Who would sit there and worship a statue and then individualize each supposed god or goddess that this one's going to protect me from this, this is going to provide me from that? Who do we see does that? That's their whole basis. The Catholic Church with what? Saints. Now, of course, you can't call them saints or you can't call them gods or goddesses. Right, because you're supposed to be Christian, or at least appear to be Christian, and they're not, as we saw in our 12-week Catholicism study. Uh, but and in, in the, in the first of the Ten Commandments is what you shall have no other gods. So how do you get around that? Just change the name. But the principle is the same, right? Remember we saw it? they got a saint for everything, man. Right, and then of course don't say it's a statue that you're worshiping; it's a figurine. <laughs> What's a figurine? It's a statue. It's the same thing. Oh, and by the way, they're called not just the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And we'll see even more evidence of that tonight. Very interesting. Can you wonder where they get a lot of their practices from, folks? I'm telling you, you followed the trail. Uh, it's the same thing. But speaking of saints, gods, listen to this. They had, uh, back to the Romans, they had a god for everything. For abundance, for rivers, for fairness, for snakes, for grain, for future, for poetry, music, oracles, chastity, cattle, uh, fire, sky, fresh water, heart, and the internal organs. Uh, oh, uh, Cloquina was the uh, goddess uh, over the system of sewers. Uh, marital harmony, growth, uh, brooms that were used to purify temples had its own god. Uh, discord and strife, oaths, death, discipline, wealth, horses and horsemen fame, protection from the evil eyes we saw before, uh, prophecy, herd and livestock, fever, fertility, success, liberty, loyalty, flowers, wells and springs, lightning, strength, honor, uh, to keep evil spirits away, uh, fountains, wells, springs, youth, uh, your house, generosity, death, corpses and uh, funerals, weapons, shepherds, wolves, infant mortality, souls of the dead, and I am, kid you not, I'm skipping over a ton. There's page after page after page. Uh, poisonous gases and uh, volcanic vapors had uh, a goddess. Uh, bees and beekeeping uh and there's one actually uh mena was the goddess of menstruation for lady i kid you not industries trades grinding grain retribution valor fate destiny chance uh uh they had a woodpecker god his name was picus p-i-c-u-s check it out they had a god for everything punishment fruit trees garden orchards keys doors forethought uh oak trees grain disease crops uh breastfeeding mothers sea water security the sun luck hope fertilizer storms sudden weather boundaries peace and tranquility okay and, and you're thinking well this is crazy who in the world will do this who does this sound like 
It's the exact same thing they do, but they don't call it gods and goddesses because that's not right. You're supposed to be supposed to appear Christian. And that's why they call themselves Roman Catholic Church. Okay, as well. But I had to share this one. I kid you not. They even had a god of cattle worms. It was called Verminus, which I think is where we get the word vermin from. So but anyway, that kind of makes sense. But they not only worship gods and goddesses, everything you can think of, just like the Roman Catholic uh, Church does today with saints. It's the same practice, unfortunately, and it's unbiblical uh, either way. But they also had uh, worship of man. And so specifically, uh, the Roman emperors. And they begin to have Roman emperor worship called the imperial cult, right? So they had the, the big gods. They had all these lesser gods and goddesses and things of that nature. And then they begin to worship their political figures. Now, why is that important? Because the Bible says that in the last days, what's going to happen? A revived Roman empire. And then what's going to appear on the scene? A political figure who's going to what? Demand worship just like back in the days of Rome. And of course, we see that 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Uh, Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, who in the world will do that? Well, first of all, you've got people, even the church, claiming to be little gods today. There's all kinds of people claiming to be gods. New Agers claim to be God, uh, things of that nature. Uh, But again, you're going to see a revived Roman Empire, and then the Antichrist figure, a political figure, is going to demand worship just like back in Rome. It's going to repeat. Now, he's also going to work with a Roman harlot that is going to oversee uh, the religions on the planet. And now he's going to turn on that harlot, who originally controls all the religions. And again, Rome, uh, uh, you know, basically had control of the religions. They were very, you could worship whatever, this God and whatever. So that's even going to uh, return. Now that harlot works with this uh, Antichrist. It's a Roman harlot. And I'll prove to that here in a second. It's Revelation 17. Now, a lot of people would say that this represents the Catholic Church. And I think you'll see why in just a second. Revelation 17, verse 1 and two, and then nine says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Verse nine, and you're like, well, who is this woman? Quote, here's one clue. He gives you very uh, other descriptions. He said, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven heels on which the woman what? Sits. So this woman is associated with seven hills. Okay. Well, guess what Rome had? Seven hills. Not only seven hills, but what is Rome's headquarters? What is the Roman Catholic headquarters called? The Vatican. Now, did you know that the Romans also had a god that they worship called Vaticanus? Okay. Shocker. And that's where the Roman Catholic Church got their term for the Vatican. It is a direct result of what was going on on Vatican Hill, okay, back in the Roman times, okay? Uh, The second photo, as you can see here, is the seven hills of Rome. Over here, uh, across the the Tiber River, is the the Vatican, the Vatican Hill. Now, the Vatican Hill uh, was the hill that the supposed god, Vaticanus, was worshipped, okay, And basically, the early Romans would climb this hill that now the Vatican is on, 
okay, to pray to their god, Vaticanus. Now, that particular god, they believed, uh, was a god of prophecy that would, uh, of divine messages and was the bearer of, quote, auditory texts from heaven. And that's what the Roman Catholic Church believes they are, the final sole authority, including the so-called Pope. Wait till you see his Roman title. We'll get to that in a second. Again, it's not by chance they're called the Roman Catholic Church, okay? But the Roman Catholic Church believes that they're basically the sole authority hearing from heaven and that the Pope is the vicar of Christ in place of Christ uh, instead of Christ on the earth. Excuse me, but that's what they believe their voice is. But that goes back to the old worship of Vaticanus that it is now built upon across from the seven hills on which Rome was built on that Revelation talks about that this last day's harlot is going to be working in conjunction, controlling the world's religions, working with this antichrist uh, figure. So just kind of interesting little tidbit there when you study the history. Who's that uh, harlot in the last days? A lot of people say, oh, it's not the Catholic Church. Well, whatever. Starts to stack up when you understand the history. Uh, the Roman Senate also, what you're going to see, they had a, a, a two f- forms of worship that was going on. Basically, like the big gods that we saw, the big eight, okay, and the other major deities, Okay, that was up to the Senate and the people involved in the politics, the higher ups. That was their job to uh, be the high priest for those people or those, those entities, right? What we're also going to see, Bo, but the average Joe, okay, at home, you were responsible. We'll get into this in a second. Okay, I just want to tell you where we're going with it. The average Joe, you were responsible for all the lesser ones, okay? Uh, and so there was kind of a, a, a dual approach. The government will take care of the big ones on your behalf. And as long as they do a good job, then you prosper, uh, the nation. And then if you want to prosper as a family, you've got to handle all these lesser ones. Okay, so that, that's where we're going. Now, the Romans, back to handling the big ones, okay, uh, they didn't do it alone, right? They sought advice, okay? And this is all occult stuff. And, of course, the big uh, two, I'll give you two big ones that they sought advice from. Uh, the first one was what was called the Sibylline Oracle. Now, the Sibylline Oracle, the supposed oracle that did all these so-called prophecies uh, that the government, the Roman government, would go back and look, and they had them in books. Now, of course, where would, do you think they kept these books? In the Temple of Apollo, as we saw, was not only one of the big deities, but he was supposed to be the god of prophecy and knowledge and literature and stuff so that's where they kept them and then they would go back and uh try to get wisdom you know what should we do this do we attack this and whatever the other one that they uh consulted and again it's all occult practices that they relied upon unfortunately was this one this is the oracle of delphi okay as we saw before now if you can see that with the picture there uh there's uh, uh there's a crack in the ground and that's actually very accurate we dealt with this again in our charismatic chaos study uh, but the crack in the ground, and this is true, this is based on historical records, the Oracle of Delphi was set upon this chair kind of tripod thing over that crack in the ground, and those were gases that were coming forth, right? And, uh, and as we saw, those gases, it was, yeah, you're going to have a vision, all right. But what they said was, no, 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 that's the spirit of the gods would all of a sudden come upon her, and, uh, or even Apollo himself, Okay, and then you better listen to what comes out of her mouth. But we saw, no, that wasn't the spirit of God's. Uh, the reason why you're having these visions, and I don't doubt that you had visions and saw things, but it was not because of the spirit of God's, it's because of a crack in the ground with poisonous gas, right? Same thing happens today when you go to the dentist. <laughs> right, same thing. Uh, so, but anyway, it's crazy, but that's what they did. 
Okay, and again, this is their idea. The Romans considered themselves very religious, and again, they attributed their success of Roman society and the longevity of it to, quote, maintaining good relationships with the gods. Okay, so they were permeated with this stuff. And again, though they take care of the big ones, you, we'll get to in a second, had to deal with the lesser ones. But listen to their principle. Uh, the idea of having a direct one-on-one relationship with, the first of all, one and only God was revolutionary uh, to that society, but also this intimacy that we have. You know, as the Hebrew says, that we have direct access to the very throne of God. Uh, it, we could approach God with uh, boldness, with confidence, in our time of need for help and things of that nature. Isn't that wonderful, Right? Nothing this. Their whole idea of religion was this, quote, it's a contractual basis. Their principle was this, I give that you might give. It wasn't because they loved these deities or whatever. It was just just this thing you had to do so that you wouldn't have a rotten life. Now tell me that's not prevalent, again, back to the same entities that are, you got about power and you learn about power. It's all about power and you come to me and buy this book and this technique and you get power, right? What's the other thing? You're not giving, you're not serving God, you're not seeking Jesus Christ because you love him with this intimate, beautiful relationship. Why are you doing it? I give that you might give. In fact, they're even told that's money. If you give $100, God's going to bless you with tenfold, a hundredfold, sow that seed, whatever. That's the same baloney the Romans went through. And then you wonder why the non-Christian goes into that environment and goes, all you want is my money, number one. And number two, what kind of a relationship is this? Was God some cosmic butler in the sky? Well, this is what Rome did. And again, unfortunately, it's being repeated today. But basically, that's the kind of the big guys. Let's go back to the individual. Now, the individual, every house would have a shrine, something akin to this, right? And they would have libations and, and prayers and all kinds of things that they would do. Uh, they would also have uh, dotted throughout the cities. They would have like public shrines that you could also do your part there too. But every home basically had to have a shrine. And, and your livelihood as a person in Rome depended on this. You better take this serious, right? They were permeated with this stuff. Now, that was the home thing. Let's, let's bounce back to the, because this is very interesting. Let's bounce back to the Senate. These guys that were overtaking the big guys, right? See, you, you know, the average Roman citizen, you just dealt with the lesser guys. You, you had no business messing with the big ones, right? Now, listen to this. Those guys, again, were run by the public officials, okay? The public officials basically did double duty. Yeah, there were public officials in the Senate over the government, but they they also, if you will, functioned as priests. In fact, Julius Caesar, listen to this, became Pontifus Maximus. Now, that means chief high priest. Now, does that sound familiar? That's the title of the pope. Pontifus Maximus, okay? And again, they're not the Catholic Church, they're the what? Roman Catholic Church. Do you wonder why they do what they do? Even their so-called behavior, which obviously a lot is completely unbiblical, this is where it comes from, right? But again, that's the term that Julius Caesar had because he was a high priest. He wasn't just in the government, but again, he's a high priest dealing with these gods on behalf of Roman society uh, as well. Okay, but let's let's uh, uh, bounce back to the average Joe, and he's trying to deal with all these little lesser deities and stuff. And, and what, what would it look like? Just kind of the, the daily life of a person in Rome. Let's take a look at that. In the home itself, there would often be a shrine of some kind. Now, that shrine could be to a deity that was considered to be part of the family household or somehow associated with your family. Maybe it was a deity that your ancestor had worshipped all those years in the past, and therefore you, as a dutiful son or daughter in the family, 
worshipped and offered incense or other oblations to a deity on behalf of the family itself. And there were all sorts of household gods and deities and obligations of this sort. And these lesser deities, now again, these aren't the big deities. You wouldn't have a shrine in your home necessarily to Jupiter or to Zeus or any of the more powerful, important gods. These would be the lesser deities. But these lesser deities were a pretty important lot. These deities would protect roads. They would protect the hearth in your home, the place where one gathered in the evening, where food was cooked and all these things. The hearth was considered to be the focal point of the house itself given the obvious need for warmth and food. And a god or a lesser deity was associated with these things very often. And so from the beginning, your home, your family, all that makes you you, at least in terms of the physical DNA of who you are, and in terms of the home where you live, is associated with a veneration of the past, of the antiquity of your elders, as well as doing oblation and performing certain sacrifices two lesser deities on behalf of your family. And this pagan life, this pagan worship, forms the backdrop of the world that Christianity is born into. Christ, of course, suffers and dies under the Roman establishment. He is nailed to a Roman cross. There is a Roman soldier, the Gospels tells us, at the foot of the cross, commenting on the Messiah on the cross. And the Apostles themselves worshipped and spread the faith and evangelized into a Roman world, into a world dominated by this ethos, by this paganism. And it wasn't just paganism. It wasn't just the worship of gods and goddesses, little g's, of course. Uh, it was witchcraft. I'm telling you, just like we saw in Babylon, Egypt, and Greece, Rome was flooded with witchcraft. Now, part of the reason why was just like we saw last time with Greece is they just basically took the uh, Greek witch uh, god for witchcraft, Hecate, and they just changed the name to Trivia. And Trivia was the Roman goddess of witchcraft. There's your little piece of Trivia for tonight, right? Uh, but she was, the, the Trivia was supposedly the goddess who haunted crossroads, graveyards, was the goddess of sorcery, witchcraft, wandered about at night, was seen only by barking dogs uh, who told of her approach. And what does that sound like if you were here last week? Hecate, the same thing, right? So they just switched it right on over, okay? Uh, and that's why they're saying the same thing. Now, as part of her role as the, quote, under God, underworld goddess, she was known as the queen of ghosts. She was also known to steal young maidens to assist her in her powers. If you know anything about the modern movement, which is old-fashioned witchcraft called Wicca, it's exactly what they do. They go after young girls to pull them in, teenage girls especially, and they do the exact same thing. Now, speaking of witchcraft and things, a lot of witchcraft, of course, deals with uh, uh, demonic entities. Of course, you know, they don't always necessarily acknowledge that they're demonic entities. They say they're spirits and whatever, and that they control them, or those spirits will help them, and they'll call them up to help them, you know, protect them and all that stuff. Romans did the same thing. They had a bunch of different kind of, quote, spirits, okay? Uh, The first one that we're going to talk about is called lemurs or larvae. Doesn't that bug you? Yeah, that's where, if you believe it or not, larvae actually was a, uh, considered a Roman spirit, okay? Now, they believed that they were spirits of dead people, okay? Uh, which, of course, today, if something does appear on the scene and says that it's your Aunt Vera or Uncle Chucky or Abraham Lincoln or whatever, we know it's not that, right? Because the Bible's very clear that when you die, you go straight to heaven or you go straight to hell and you ain't coming back. So if something does appear 
and they can, demons are very deceptive, right? They can mimic somebody's voice, okay? Uh, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that that's real. What are you dealing with? A demonic entity, a familiar spirit. And eventually we're going to get into that study again uh, as well in our study on witchcraft. But they felt that these were uh, people's spirits, which is not demonic, but that's what they felt. Uh, and they, they're, uh, they, these guys, the lemurs, the larvae, were bad ones, okay, had to look out for. And they said they turned into vengeful spirits because they were not afforded a proper burial or they didn't, weren't given funeral rites or the people still living didn't show them affection back at that home altar, right? And so now they're mad, all right? So that's kind of what they did. And so they would uh, do certain things to appease these spirits, okay? Uh, in fact, they would have, uh, and this is back to the household. This is all the stuff you had to do every single day if you want to prosper as an average Joe Roman, right? And what they do is they had this thing called the Lemuria Festival. This was on May 9th, 11th, and 13th, and it was dedicated every year. In fact, the Roman calendar was built around all these things, all these rituals, all these things, okay? Uh, that the head of the household would rise at midnight and cast black beans behind him with an adverted gaze, and then these lemurs or larvae would feast on them. Now, you hope that worked. Now, if it didn't work and they didn't like your black beans, right? Can you imagine this is part of your life? Right? You didn't cast the black beans, okay? Then the only other thing you had to do to get rid of them right, is you had to bang bronze pots together really loud. That was supposed to get rid of them, okay? And again, you think, well, this is crazy. Why would they do this? Because this is their, their, their way of life. This is what they're told, right? They're told that basically every household functioned in relation to how well people in the house treated the spirits. A home in which rituals were kept and the spirits were honored, you followed all the prescriptions, all the rituals, you followed the calendar, did all the deeds, then, quote, uh, that would be guaranteed success, and if you were successful, you say, well, see, that's because I'm honoring the spirits. I'm doing what I'm told, okay? And I'm doing it on the exact dates, exactly. I'm throwing my beans. I'm doing all this stuff and all that stuff. Now, while those who neglected the spirits would suffer accordingly. So again, that would be the caste society. Oh, see, the reason why you're having a hard time there, Roman Susie Q, is because you're not doing the rituals, right? This was permeated. Quote, no sane Roman wanted to be haunted. So they held the ceremonies to satisfy the spirits. But they had all kinds of spirits. Uh, I'm not, not going to go super deep, but they had, they had called manase. These were supposed to be, again, the ghost of individuals that were supposed to be uh, good. They had panes and panates. Uh, these were the ones that were in your pantry that kept your food safe and from spoiling. Uh, they would actually have the uh, panantes on the table of figurines while you ate. And then you would, wouldn't eat all your food. You'd save a little bit back and you would burn it into the hearth uh, as an offering to them. Thanks for the food and keeping it fresh and all that stuff. Uh, they had the la rays, which was supposed to be guardian spirits. Uh, they had the parentes. That's where we get the word parents from. Why? Because that was supposed to be the spirits of your immediate family, like your mother and father, right? Who were supposedly still with you and you need to honor them. They were into ancestor worship and things of that nature. In fact, quote, if the Roman were to travel to, say, Athens, he would bring along the statues along with some fire from his hearth so that wherever he went, he could keep doing the thing. And just because you're traveling doesn't mean you can't keep doing this, right? So that's what they were doing. Uh, But they were steeped in this stuff uh, uh, with witchcraft. I mean, they had all kinds of stuff. And let me me break it down for you. Uh, Spells. Just like we saw with Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome had spells, and we still find them by the truckloads. Uh, today the spells were typically binding spells uh, to bind people for different things uh, good bad and ugly 
uh, for sporting events. I'll get to that in a second. Businesses, personal affairs, uh, love, revenge. Uh, you could use a, a binding spell uh, to invoke an upcoming athletic victory to ensure uh, that you're going to win. We, again, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, to ensure a happy marriage. Uh, uh, but you would have to uh, uh, get all this stuff from the magicians. They basically had uh, shops everywhere, just as we saw in the other societies, uh, like Spells Are Us that you would go to and you would pay and get your potions and spells and stuff. Like that. So it was business, right? But that, their whole society was permeated with this stuff. Not just the worship of little G gods and goddesses, but witchcraft and all kinds of stuff. So again, when, when the church comes across Simon the Sorcerer, you think that was some anomaly? No, it was just one guy that they ran into. Who knows how many witches and sorcerers they ran into in the other church. Right? The society was uh, uh, all over the place. And of course, they too had uh, amulets. We find amulets galore uh, in digs all over the place. Uh, and they were designed to uh, uh, protect them. Also, they would have spells written on them and things. It was a considered, quote, must-have fashion uh, accessory. Uh, they find them all over the place in Roman uh, grave sites, digs. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, they found a, an amulet that was engraved with a palindromic spell. Uh, basically, it's the same forwards and backwards. Uh, kind of we saw the word abracadabra and stuff of that nature, so they found that. This was interesting. They found a gold scroll in a silver amulet capsule thought to have belonged to an ancient uh, Roman child. Uh, and again, you would get these from the local witchcraft shop. And of course, uh, that was not only that, but as we saw with the other ones, they were big on cursing, man. Curse them. Big time curse tablets, spells. Uh, they'd have them on lead, wax, or stone. And uh, to get back at people, uh, the cursed tablets were, quote, the takedowns of the ancient world. If someone disrespected you or harmed you, you could head to your local uh, witch or magician and pay for them to curse other people. They would curse those that hurt their family, those who committed crimes against them, uh, those that they went up into court against. um, And they find massive caches, huge deposit of these things. Uh, uh, not only in Rome and the Roman area, but including modern-day United Kingdom. Now, why would they find that? Because that was one of the areas that Rome eventually went to, which we're going to see heavily influence Europe, and, but we'll get to that at another time. Again, just like we saw last time, the voodoo doll, basically. Voodoo is nothing new under the sun. They've been doing this from the get-go. This is a, a Roman one. A little bit different on this version was they didn't just have the, the, the entities, the person, you know, with pins and stuff and, and you know, or bound and things of that nature uh, and spells uh, inside there. They put it in a little coffin. As you can see there, that was a little coffin and it'd be a binding spell. And I, I guess that was supposed to, to, to get them really bad. But again, they use these things uh, for their benefit. Okay, let me, let me show you how, how they use all these amulets, these spells, these curses and stuff, right? They, they would go to this uh, witchcraft store and stuff, and the, and the sorcerer there, what would they hire them for? Well, let me break that down real quick. Uh, chariot races. These guys were sports fanatics, right? You think that uh, uh, Jim is uh, a, a Raiders fan? You ain't seen nothing yet, right? You, I mean, just, are you a Raiders fan yet, Jim? Okay, whenever. All right, whatever. Thanks for being open. Uh, but man, these guys were sports fanatics. So much so that just like people today, you talk about get, they were gambling addicts. You, 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 this is Vegas all over, big time. And they would resort to anything to win, including using witchcraft. Okay, quote, you want to make a, a, a bet on a sure thing with a chariot race? The ancient Romans had a secret way of ensuring the race was fixed. They'd use magic. They'd use witchcraft. Uh, everyone from the emperor down to the lowest slave loved chariot racing. Gambling is probably basically like our version of football. 
Football, that's the biggest popular one. Chariot races back then, man, that was the thing. Okay, gambling was widespread at these races. The Romans prepared to bet on anything, including everything they owned, on outrageous rates of interest. You know, they had the bookies and all that stuff uh, in hopes for the big whim. And, of course, they'd do anything. For a small fee, the magician or witch or sorcerer would inscribe the names of the horses of the other teams on a tablet, along with a request to a deity to, quote, bind their feet and hobble them. Okay, and then after the magician or witch finished inscribing, folding, and piercing the tablet with a nail. Notice that's always done, the nail thing, and it, it, it transfers all the way down through these practices, okay, even today. Okay, the gambler would then uh, uh, take the nail and the inscription to the ground beneath the starting gates and make sure to hide it with a little bit of dust. So that was their technique to make sure. So, but let's, let's watch a little depiction of that. It's kind of funny. Roman racing fans were no different than modern sports junkies. Merchandise was everywhere. Fans would wear team colors and buy mass-produced souvenirs. The circus games were a multi-dimensional sensory experience, and it makes a lot of sense that fans wanted to take some kind of memento with them. Charioteers like Scorpus were so popular that their images appeared across the Roman world. Now, at the height of his fame, Scorpus was the man to beat, and his opponents were prepared to resort to dark tactics, even black magic. Today, fans have been known to have their ashes scattered around their favorite sports stadiums. And 2,000 years ago, Roman racing fans were no less obsessive. Scorpus would have been surrounded by supporters who delighted in his success for the Green Faction. The fans who went to the racing were hugely passionate, but they were also hugely knowledgeable. They knew all kinds of details about the horses, about the horses' breeding and pedigree. They knew about the charioteers and the charioteers' records, and they were intensely loyal to their factions. Even a star athlete could get into trouble wandering into enemy territory. And if you couldn't physically attack the opposition, there was another way to get at them. By using magic. You could pay someone to put a curse on the rival team. You would often do this in a great deal of detail. One of the cursed tablets found and not only names the charioteers in the rival team, but also names their mothers. And then you affix this lead tablet and you bury it in a significant place. Next to this enormous racetrack at Caesarea in modern-day Israel, excavations have discovered proof of this dark magic. They had been buried in water. We're now looking at the well, where around 60 curses were found. Wells were thought to provide access to the underworld and the underworld god. And that's the reason that magicians deposited curses in them. Crazy. I'm sure people don't do that today. Yeah, they resort to all kinds of techniques. You hear stories in you know, different sports where all of a sudden the team, they all got to the town that they were playing against their rival, and, of course, they went to a restaurant, and they all ended up getting what? 
food poisoning. You know why? Because they serve him chicken. That's an easy technique. Huh? Well, you know he's going to say that. But again, they throw him in the well. Why? Because we saw before, even back with Egypt, that believe that was closer to the underworld, and then the, 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 the deities would take up their cause and do the dirty deed and cause the opponent to lose. So things of that nature. Uh, but not only with uh, sports, these witchcraft, again, uh, with murder. I don't have time in to get into this, but there was a huge, huge portion of uh, uh, black magic uh, in Rome. And again, that's the false dichotomy. Well, I'll just do white magic. Well, again, I'll do the uh, black magic, white magic. I don't care what color you call it. It's what? It's magic. It's evil. And that's, that's the illusion. Boiled chicken, baked chicken, fried chicken. It's still chicken, right? So you just call it whatever, you know, it's true. Okay, uh, but that's what they would do. I don't have time to get into it. So it gets, but they got into some serious black magic and things of that nature, including we're going to kill people and whatever. So, uh, but murder, uh, if Rome wanted to get rid of a rival, he had two options. He can kill himself or hire a hitman they had back in the day. The third option was basically you would hire a sorcerer, a witch, uh, and, and to go kill the guy. Uh, instructions for committing murder using witchcraft uh, were pretty straightforward. They would get a piece of lead, shape it into a thin, flat rectangle, inscribe the message of some infernal deity on it, and then, of course, go out and make a donation off to the temple. Then the magician would follow a ritual. Uh, he or she would fold the lead tablet, pierce it with a nail. Uh, they would take it to the graveyard. Why to the graveyard? contact with the spirits that could take up the dirty deed and and do the job for him the magician would dig a hole and and then insert the tablet into the grave and then supposedly the person is going to die as well flip the around then they would use it for supposedly with love uh romantic issues boy they were big on using witchcraft potions all kinds of stuff not only that but uh, sometimes uh to try to fix your relationship quote do you suspect your husband of having an affair uh commission a, a magician to fix it for you uh, they would inscribe a lead tablet with the words basically to some deity to cause that person to turn away from that person that they're messing with. You know, the, uh, and, or you could use an amulet uh, made of stone or papyrus, uh, metal to get your loved one back. Uh, but, uh, or if you were too shy and you had romantic interest towards somebody uh, or you liked somebody but they were married to somebody else, boy, they would use witchcraft to try to mess up that relationship. Uh, and I quote, a magician would take two clay figurines, one male, one female, inscribe the names of the intended lovers on them, tie them together, take a strand or a piece of hair or fabric from the clothing of, of them, uh, deposit them in a, a grave uh, of someone who had died by violence. Uh, and then they would do a spell and uh, ask the deities to do the deed, and supposedly that's going to work. Uh, as mentioned before, they also took him to court. Okay, it's crazy. They actually, the average Roman... Uh, when you went to court, you would prepare two defenses. One was an actual legal defense, and the other one was relying on witchcraft, in case that didn't work. I kid you not. Watch this. Uh, Romans had a a serious advanced legal system, uh, but it often favored those who were wealthy and uh, free. Okay? So basically, the average Joe, he wasn't wealthy. Uh, A lot of times, weren't free. So what'd you do? You didn't have any political clout. You didn't have economic power. What'd you do? They resorted to witchcraft. Uh, and so they would they would take in these spells with them and whatever, and basically what they would do is they would uh, ask these deities and these spells and these curses to quote bind the tongue of my opponent Rufus and make him speechless. Do not let him win this lawsuit and things of that nature. They find these things all over the place, but their belief in, in that was widespread, including as we get ready to close health, health as well as contraception. 
they used witchcraft in. Uh, Roman uh, illnesses were often widespread. Obviously, there were some of them obviously incurable. Not surprisingly, again, if you didn't have all the access to economy and high status, you would resort to witchcraft. Okay, and uh, for instance, a dislocation or fracture could be treated by binding a five-foot green reed uh, and saying the following incantation which I'm not going to repeat. The Romans were also, they would call on anything and anyone just to get a healing, including uh, other deities from other countries, like even Egypt. If you had a scorpion sting, they would call on the Egyptian deity uh, circuit, uh, S-E-R-K-E-T, to get the job done. Women, though, uh, who wanted to avoid getting pregnant, had various choices in witchcraft as to how to get that job done. One was to make an amulet, listen, out of a piece of fawn skin, bound with mule hide, stuffed with certain bitter seeds, the mucus of a cow, and some grains of barley. You had to do this during the waning of the moon as you invoke some other otherworldly beam. So my theory is the reason why, if it did work, is because you stunk so bad, nobody wanted it, whatever. But as we saw before, that's uh, unfortunately the Greek thing. They did the same thing with that other device. But no, seriously, I mean, they resorted to just about everything. Uh, to get this job done. In fact, it was so widespread, listen, there was anti-magic or anti-witchcraft legislation uh, in Rome, okay, and specifically uh, against uh, magic that, quote, actually killed, okay? They believed that it was actually being used for murder and killed people and things of that nature. The Roman government viewed witchcraft uh, with concern uh, because they considered that it could get dangerous, of course, they felt that certain elements was good, but certain elements were bad. It's all bad. Uh, but it was uh, uh, the Roman government, quote, often tried, always unsuccessfully, to forbid the use and even the knowledge of magic. Quote, practitioners and users of magic or witchcraft were persecuted and punished, but the many amulets, books, and spells that archaeologists still find demonstrate that their crackdown did not work and magic or witchcraft did not disappear in Rome. And you certainly see that when the church appears on the scene, still dealing with it and things of that nature. Now, as we saw, Rome eventually goes and uh, takes on Europe. Rome spreads all over uh, the Western Europe area over that at that time. Uh, but we're not going to bounce to Europe yet. We'll eventually get there. Now what I want to do in our history section is I want to grow to the next place. And we've been focusing on the West, okay, after the Tower of Babel uh, aspect Okay, is that a cool-looking tower or what? Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, the, after the Tower of Babel, okay, yeah, it went to Babel and then went to Egypt and then Greece and, and, and then, you know, Rome. You're, you're dealing with this kind of Western approach, okay? But guess where the people from Tower of Babel went also? They also went east, okay? And then they're going to go down, and then eventually you're going to see that they're going to journey long before Christopher Columbus, over into the Americas, North and South America. So next, we're going to get into, Lord William, Asian witchcraft, okay? Man, that stuff is permeated over there big time. And in fact, that's a lot of the backbone of martial arts and things of that nature. That's a hot topic, so we'll probably get into that as well. So, Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven? and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die 
and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief, I'm a blasphemer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. You, the, the word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven right and we've actually seen this work in real life uh, for instance uh, there's been people who have committed crimes gone to court the gavel's been passed the judges said hey listen we all know you're guilty uh, you even admit you're guilty and uh, for your crimes you're going to not just jail you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty and did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? 
It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us, this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.